Are you struggling on your radio calls to ATC? Are you looking for a better way to practice that's not up there in the air in that stressful situation? Well, I want to talk to you guys about something called AR Sim or Aviation Radio Simulator by Plain English. It lets you practice talking to ATC through all phases of VFR and IFR flight from taxi out to takeoff all at your own pace. There's no simulator setup needed and it works on any device, mobile or the web. So whether you're a novice or seasoned pro, the guided communication curriculum in trainer mode will elevate your comms proficiency greatly. Download ARSIM by Plain English today and check out our show notes where you can get 10% off using a coupon code. It is a great tool and I highly, highly recommend it. Hi, my name's Nick Smith founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas. This is the Audio Ground School Podcast. We got some jingle bells going, and I am in the mood. I'm not actually recording this on Christmas, but Merry Christmas to everyone out there who celebrates Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, celebrate Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or any of the other holidays, whatever you're doing. Hope you're having a good day. You're having a good celebration. Maybe you're with friends, family, or you're just relaxing by yourself. That is totally cool, too, because, you know, the world kind of slows down on these holidays. So it's great to, no matter what you do, whether you celebrate or not, to just, you know, take some time off. So Welcome into the Audio Ground School podcast. Again, my name is Nick Smith. I'm your host, founder of Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School. Now, for this Christmas episode, because this is like just lined up perfectly that it's Christmas is on a Monday and we release our episodes on Mondays. Because this is a Christmas episode, I wanted to do something special, so I thought of some ideas and I want to apologize if you don't have Instagram for this, but this is the best I come up with. As you know, we have a Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book. The PDF comes for free with your ground school, purchase of your ground school. So it's like all those like Gypsum and other test prep, ASA test prep books where, you know, it gives you a breakdown of the subject and then gives you FA written type questions to study for to prep yourself for the test. But we call it the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book because it goes into much more detail on those subjects. So usually there's just like five bullet points or 10 bullet points on a subject and then in those books will include diagrams, videos, mnemonic devices, all that stuff. So you really have a chance to understand that completely and not just so you can kind of choose. And so that's why it's kind of the ultimate private pod test pro book. That PDF comes with your purchase of the ground school. It's in our bonus download section along with flashcards and recorded 
bunch of other stuff, but it's also available on Amazon. It's $37 on Amazon. $37 for a few reasons. Honestly, it's got enough material in there to really be the price of a ground school, but I realize that people aren't going to pay textbook type prices. So that's why it's not a hardcover. It's a paper cover and printing costs on Amazon are pretty steep. So I think I'm paying like close to 30 bucks just to print the dang thing. So, you know, I got to make a little profit on it. So that's why kind of why it's $37. But for this Christmas episode, for those of you that have Instagram who follow us on Instagram, if you're not, it's at part period time period pilot. So part time pilot with periods in between, go give us a follow. And I am going to post about this episode on Christmas day. I'm going to make a post. It'll say, you know, have the kind of cover art for our podcast and it'll say episode number 73 Christmas episode or whatever. And on that post, I want you to tag, I want people to tag you in the comments. So you get your friends, followers, whoever to tag you individually in the comments. And the person who has, who gets tagged the most on that, actually the top two people, I will send, I'll reach out to you and ask you what's a good address I can send. And I'll send you the ultimate private pot test prep book for free. So the two people with the most people, again, you have to, on the post that I post on Christmas Day, it's going to say episode number 73 of the podcast, that post, that picture, have people comment and tag you in it. If they don't tag you in it, then I won't know. I'm going to count how many times I see your Instagram username in the comments, in individual comments, and that is how I'm going to determine the, the two winners. So go ahead and do that. This is a test to see who my loyal listeners are and who don't skip through all the talk at the beginning of my episodes, which I try and keep for valuable to you guys. And I also read off some reviews to help us out because I do do this for free. For those loyal people that that listen all the way through, I appreciate you. And for Christmas, I want to kind of do a little something special, just a little, little something, right? All right. With that said, let's get on and let's do our couple of reviews. We'll read off a couple of reviews. And as I said, you want to review read off and leave it at trustpilot.com just search part-time pilots a certified review website leave us a review there and i might read it off or on apple Podcasts. i would really really help if you left a review there if you listen on apple Podcasts, it really helps us get seen so first review is from koi five star easy to sign up easy to sign up love having access to all of the test prep material so short and sweet love it thank you very much boy the next one here Five stars. This is as close to having a private instructor as you can get. Throughout the audio ground school, Nick goes over everything possible. If you have a question or are uncertain of an area, you can personally email or use the AI chat function or put it on Facebook and he usually is the first to respond with an answer and break it down so you'll understand. This is 100% accurate and thank you so much, Robert, for the great review. So those of you who don't know, we did add to every single lesson an AI chat function. So we took a chat GPT and we trained it on our private pilot ground school course and what the FAA is looking for in their tests and check rides and stuff. So we had a video, we posted a video on this comparing that to just a normal chat GPT. Normal chat GPT tries to kind of like please everybody and answer you know the situation for everybody. It doesn't have the context of like what the FAA is going to be looking for. So that's kind of the difference. And it turns out to be pretty big difference. So that's why we decided to do the work over a few months and train in AI ourselves. And that does not replace you being able to ask us questions. So a lot of people are like, oh, wait, I still want to talk to a human. Yep, we're still here. We will still respond super fast. You can ask us through email. We'll get back to you right there. Make sure you completely understand and want to talk to a human. Or on the Facebook study group, 
or any of our social medias, you just reach out to us. We'll get back to you and you can talk to a human. I agree. I like humans too. The cool thing about the AI is it's right there in your lesson on a chat. So like it's instant, right? You don't have to go change tabs to an email and type up an email and, you know, wait the 10, 15 minutes or so or 30 minutes or so for us to respond or whatever that is. It's instantaneous right there. And it's really cool. So if you don't understand something, you can just ask it a question and it'll provide more depth. Not 100% accurate, but the reason we trained it is to make that even more accurate and specific to what we're talking about. So thank you for the review. And with that said, let's go on to our next segment that we always do before these lessons. And that is a student question. So the student question today is this person, it's more of a flight training question. And I just want to caveat this to say that whatever I say is just recommendations and what the FAA teaches you. I am not your flight instructor. I am not in the aircraft yourself. All those decisions in the aircraft are between you and your flight instructor. So these are just suggestions, sort of best learned techniques from the FAA themselves. So with that caveat and disclaimer, I am not responsible for anything that happens in your aircraft, okay? So I just wanted to say that. But this question says, hey, everyone, I'm having some issues and wanted to see if anyone else is having the same issue or had the issue and how they got better at it. I can't keep my altitude for some point I am climbing or descending. Also, my heading, I am always struggling to keep my altitude and heading. I am a snake in the air and I really want to eliminate these issues ASAP. What are some techniques to overcome this or some advice? So basically they are afterwards, if they look at their GPS flight track, right? They're all over the place, even when they're trying to fly a straight heading, right? They're S-ing and snaking in and out of headings. So they'll, they'll get off heading and then they'll correct, then they'll overcorrect and then back onto heading. So a bunch of that going on. And then at the same time, keeping altitude. So the first thing I want to say is that both of those are kind of connected, right? When you trim the aircraft for a specific attitude and power setting and pitch attitude and all that. If you change the configuration of your aircraft in turning, including entering a turn, like to correct your heading, that's going to have an effect, right? When you turn, if we remember how aircraft turn, it decreases the vertical component of lift. So it decreases how much lift force is keeping you up in the air to maintain that altitude. That horizontal component of lift increases, and that's what makes you turn. And in turn, in response, the vertical component of lift decreases. So usually in a turn, if you don't adjust your pitch or power, right, you're going to, and you're in a turn, you're going to lose some altitude. So if you're always correcting your heading, especially with, you know, not gentle banks, you could just lose altitude doing that in all these turns if you're not at the same time adjusting pitch and stuff like that. So that's one thing it's kind of connected. But my number one answer to this is two points. It's staying ahead of the aircraft mentally so that you can fly the aircraft, right? When I was a student, this is the number one thing that happened when I would lose altitude in my maneuvers or, you know, flying across country or I would lose my heading. It was because I was, my mind was too busy elsewhere, right? Because in order to always keep your ad altitude and keep your heading, you have to constantly cross-check. So that's the other, cross-checking your instruments with what you see outside. So every minute or so, you want to check your altimeter to make sure you're still at the altitude. Check your attitude indicator, right? Check your sight picture outside the window. Check your airspeed. 
You want to make sure those are all what you want it to be, that you're maintaining that altitude, you're maintaining that, and check your heading into here. You're, you're maintaining that heading. So you constantly want to do this ever so often, you know, every minute, two minutes or so, or whatever. And if you have tasks to do, you have checklists, you have to talk to ATC, you have navigation things you got to do, but a good pilot can still constantly be able to cross-check and always the priority is to fly the aircraft. Should be able to do that and the other things, you know, multitask at the same time. But what happens when pilots cannot do that is their mind gets overloaded, basically. You get behind the aircraft mentally. Let's say, for example, this is one of the most common ones. You're in a lesson for cross-country flight lesson, and you're trying to figure out how to use the VORs to navigate. Especially on the first couple lessons, that's going to be difficult for you. And your mind's going to be really spinning on, okay, what VOR do I have to dial into? Okay, I got to dial that in on the radio. Now, what should I have a to? Should I have a from? Which radial am I on? Oh, crap, I got to check the Morse code to make sure it's even working. All that stuff, right? There's a lot to do with VOR. So that's one of the common ones. And when you're head spinning, you know, doing that stuff, you might forget to check your altitude, right? Or check your heading. And so you might drift a little bit. That's one thing. So maintaining the aircraft. The other thing is cross-checking. So we talked about that. And the reason you have to consistently do that and you want to stay ahead of the aircraft so you can consistently do that and prioritize flying the airplane is because even if you get trimmed, so people are like, well, we'll just trim the aircraft so you don't got to deal with it. This is true. You should always help yourself out where when you can trim your pitch attitude in so that you, the power and the pitch attitude you have will maintain your altitude. That way, you know, you shouldn't be adjusting power and pitch a lot uh, in cruise, right? You should have it down. But what happens, right? The wind changes, the air you're flying through may change, right? And you may, the pressure, you know, things change in the atmosphere, or you might just over time, maybe you're not completely 100% trimmed in to maintain altitude. Maybe every minute or so you go up five feet, right? So after like 30 minutes, it's a considerable amount and you're off altitude. So those things will happen and change your altitude. That's why you have to check consistently for your heading, for your altitude and stuff like that. So those are my two biggest tips to try and get ahead of the aircraft as much as possible and then consistently cross-checking your aircraft. And then on top of that, your heading indicator after a while needs to be calibrated with your magnetic compass and straight and level flight every 30 minutes or so. That has a precession error and if you don't correct your procession error, right, and then throughout your whole flight, and then afterwards you look on your GPS and you're like, man, I could have sworn I was staying on my heading that I needed to. Well, your heading indicator may be wrong by a few degrees, right? And so that could be the cause for seeing drifts and stuff like that. Also, the winds change, as we mentioned. So it's a constant cross-checking of your instruments and maintaining, you know, mentally being ahead of the aircraft. Okay, that's my spiel. Let's get on to the lesson. We have a short lesson followed by a longer lesson. For those following along in the online ground school, we are in the course. So we, again, we organize everything by courses. And to get your endorsement, we have three courses labeled steps. So step one, step two, step three. Step one is all your lessons, all your quizzes, all your videos, all your visual aids, your mnemonic devices, all that stuff. So that's what we're in. We're in the lessons. And of that course, we're in section 14 on airport operations. And so that has 12 lessons in it, that section, and we are on the last two lessons. So we're going to finish up another section that's really exciting because we only have four more sections after this. So yeah, I wonder probably around 100 episodes or so we'll be done with the ground school. So 
We're on lesson 11, land and hold short operations, and then we'll get to lesson 12 on takeoffs and landings. Just some information that the FAA wants you to know for the FAA written on takeoffs and landings. Plus, as always, we go a little bit extra and give you some more insight into takeoffs and landing. All right, so let's get on to lesson 11 on land and hold short operations. Land and hold short operations, also known as LASO, L-A-H-S-O, is a procedure that may or may not be accepted by a pilot. So ATC might ask you to land and hold short. So they might say, land and hold short, I've run my blah, blah, blah. You may or may not accept that. That's up to you. For a pilot to receive a lasso clearance request from ATC, there must be VFR conditions. So 1,000 feet ceiling and three statue miles visibility. You as a private pilot will always be flying in VFR conditions because you're not IFR rated yet. But that's a good thing to know because the FAA written might ask you about that. So this is because they want to ensure that all participating pilots can see both the runway markings and other aircraft because as we get into this, it's kind of close encounters type of stuff with other traffic on a landed and hold short. So you got to make sure that there's good visibility close to the, the runways and stuff. Pilots are not required to accept a lasso, as I said, from ATC. But if they do, the pilot is expected to be able to safely land and stop within the available landing distance provided by ATC. If landing too long is likely, then the pilot should go around so that the lasso is not violated. Pilot should decline a lasso clearance at all times if it compromises safety. Lasso requires a hold short line, holding position signs, and a lasso sign with white inscription on a red background on the landing runway prior to an intersecting runway that the pilot accepting the procedures must land short of. This allows simultaneous landing and takeoff operations on the intersecting runways. Student pilots should not participate in lasso. So again, student pilots should not participate in lasso. Just say unable if you get a lasso clearance request. Available landing distance or ALD data for an airport that utilizes lasso is published in the special notices section of the chart supplement. So let's give an example of a lasso. So say there is an airport with intersecting runways. Let's say there's a runway 27, so that's pointed to the west. And then there's a runway you know, 36 or 0, right? 36. So that's pointed to the north. So, And let's say that they just make an equal straight up plus sign, right? The runway going to the north splits the runway going to the west right down the middle. If you're landing on the runway going to the west and ATC says Cherokee 748 uniform landing runway 27 land and hold short of runway 36 okay something like that but they're requesting you to land on 27 and then hold short of 36 so if you get that right and you've never done it before at this airport and you're like you're not sure well could i even do that am i up to that skill of landing that short if you even have to think about it for a second just say unable you totally can say unable they may ask you to go around but what's going to happen is that they want you to land. So let's say you accept it. If you accept it, you absolutely must land and hold short of 3-6 because what they're going to do is they're going to expect that from you to land and come to a complete stop before you get to the intersecting runway that goes to the north because at the same time you're landing, a run, a aircraft might be taking off to the north. So if you do not stop before runway 36 and you go into the intersect you go into and onto runway 36 you might collide with that take that other aircraft either taking off or landing so this provides simultaneous operations so sometimes these runways are really long and for these like little aircraft it's pretty easy to stop before the intersection 
but don't do it unless you've done it before. You know for sure you can stop in that distance because it could be bad if you do not. And there's going to be signs there that show you where to stop short of, lasso signs and stuff like that. And then again, if you're a student pilot, don't accept it. All right, so that's it. Pretty short lesson. We mentioned the things you need to know for the FAA written. And let's continue on to the last lesson of the section on takeoffs and landing. Let's talk a little bit about takeoff and landing. The FAA written does not go into too much detail about your takeoffs and landing techniques, but they do ask some things in regards to assessing the safety of your takeoff roll or landing approach. First off, let's talk about takeoff and climb out. Prior to takeoff, a pilot will perform a before takeoff checklist. The before takeoff check is a systematic AFM POH, again, that's approved flight manual or pilot operating handbook for your aircraft procedure for checking the engine, controls, systems, instruments, and avionics prior to flight. Normally, the before takeoff checklist is performed after taxi to a run-up position near the takeoff end of the runway. So most airports will have like a little part off to the side of the taxiway where there's different parking spots where aircraft can pull to the side and do their run-up check right before they take off. It's called the run-up area. And this question might be on your favorite exam, so remember that where you normally would do the before takeoff checklist. Many engines require that the oil temperature reach a minimum value as stated in the AFM POH before takeoff power is applied. That's why we kind of do this run up. We also want to see how the engine reacts to higher RPMs before we actually you know, use it in high RPMs when our lives are at stake. A suitable location for the run up should be a firm, which is a smooth paved surface if possible, and free of debris. Otherwise, the propeller may pick up pebbles, dirt, mud, sand, or other loose objects and hurl them backwards. This damages the propeller and may damage the tail of the airplane. Small chips in the leading edge of the propeller form stress risers or high-stress concentrations. These are highly undesirable and may lead to cracks and possible propeller blade failure. There should not be anything behind the airplane that might be damaged by the propeller airflow blasting rearward. When you have completed all checklists in the run-up, and are ready to take off, you must get ATC clearance to do do so. Here is a common back and forth with ATC for takeoff clearance. Pilot, Airport Tower, Cherokee 234, Quebec at runway 21, ready for takeoff, departing to the east. Here you have said who you are talking to, the Airport Tower, who you are, Cherokee 234, Quebec, where you are, runway 21, and what you want to do, ready for takeoff, depart to the east. ATC Tower might come back and say Cherokee 234, Quebec, Runway 21 cleared for takeoff, right downwind departure. Or Cherokee 234 Quebec, hold short, runway 21. Or they might say, hold in position, don't go to, up to the runway, hold short line just yet because there might be other traffic. So there's a few things they could say, but those are just a couple examples. Pilot read back, then you would read back what ATC cleared you to do. So runway 21 cleared for takeoff, right downwind departure, 34 Quebec. Or hold short, runway 21, 34 Quebec, depending on what clearance they gave you. And here, that's just you want to read back the runway number, whether you need to hold short or are you're cleared for takeoff, and the last few digits of your tail number. You know, make sure you say the runway number, though, in your read back. So your tail number, the runway number, and what your clearance is. Those are the important parts to read back. Once a pilot is cleared, they can begin their roll to the center line and start performing final takeoff checklist items. The pilot should ensure that runway numbers on paved runways agree with magnetic compass and heading indicators before beginning takeoff roll. The last check as power is brought to full takeoff power includes doors latched and windows closed as required, controls positioned to account for any crosswind, power correct, is the power correct, engine RPM normal, is it normal, engine smooth, 
is the engine feel smooth, engine instruments normal, and in green ranges. Once the checklist is complete, the pilot can focus on the rollout. Also, you also see lights, camera, action on that. People might say lights, camera, action on that final engine check. So that's kind of like lights. It's kind of like all your indicators. I may be wrong. I've never learned uh, that way. So I don't know. Maybe someone can write in and, and tell us what that is. But you might hear that. That's what it's referring to. Once this checklist is complete, the pilot can focus on the rollout, lift out, and climb out while continuously checking back on engine instruments and health. During a rollout, pilots should maintain centerline and gently keep the nose down with yoke back pressure. And if you have a um, tailplane because of the three-point attitude of a tailplane, you'll have a high angle of attack with all three wheels down, even the, the small wheel on your tail. Because of that, your aircraft will want to take off, so you'll have to apply even more back pressure to keep the nose down on a, a tailwheel. If there is a crosswind, the aileron should be positioned into the wind to help maintain centerline and a wing rising prematurely on ground roll. Once rotation speed for the aircraft is met, the pilot can gently pull back on the yoke to lift off into ground effect. After liftoff, pilots should pitch in ground effect and to their desired climb speed, which is either VX or VY before climbing out. So what are VX and VY? VX, which is V sub X, is the best angle of climb speed. The best angle of climb speed gives you the maximum amount of altitude gain per distance on the ground. Best angle of climb is commonly used when obstacles near the runway need to be cleared on climb out as it gets you the highest in the smallest amount of distance. I remember VX as best angle because the letter X has so many angles in it. The next one is VY or best rate of climb speed. The best rate of climb speed allows you to climb to your desired altitude in the minimum amount of time. Best rate of climb is the most commonly used as it gets you to your cruise altitude as quickly as possible. As a pilot lifts off and climbs at VX or VY, if there is a crosswind, they will want to maintain the same aileron input into the wind that they had on the takeoff roll in order to maintain the imaginary center line during the climb out upwind phase of the pattern or departure. So you want to have crosswind inputs at, during your rollout and as you gain airspeed you're gonna right you're gonna get more lift and you're gonna have to continue to input those crosswind components if you want to maintain that center line pilots sh should remain focused on flying the aircraft during takeoff despite the ease at which some aircraft can take off and any distractions they may have due to the fact that they are flying close to stall speed takeoffs are a common power on flight maneuver that can lead to a stall if a pilot becomes too distracted remember that for the FAA written exam. You may see something like that. Here's a note. For a tailwheel aircraft, the takeoff is a little different due to the angle of attack the aircraft has while sitting on the ground in what's called the three-point attitude. I talked about this a little bit. Because of the small wheel on the tail, when all three wheels are on the ground, the aircraft is in a high AOA attitude. Usually, the pilot doesn't need, even need to pull back on the yoke in order to lift off, but once they do lift off, they are dangerously close to the critical AOA. This is why pilots are taught to add forward pressure, that means push the yoke forward, on a rollout to lift the tail and keep the nose down for longer. As the aircraft accelerates, less forward pressure is needed. When the appropriate pitch attitude is maintained throughout the takeoff roll, liftoff occurs when the AOA and airspeed combine to produce the necessary lift without any additional rotation input. Alright, so that was a note on tailwheel aircraft and why we keep that yoke back pressure on takeoff. Alright, now let's talk about approach and landing. If you are coming in to land on final at a controlled airport, you will need to have already received all instruction from the tower. Continue to listen on tower frequency until you are cleared to change frequencies by the tower. 
That means through landing and taxi off the runway. If you are at an uncontrolled airport, you should continue to update your position on the CTAF Unicom frequency. For example, Apple Valley traffic, Cessna 147 Zulu, turning downwind to base, runway 29er, full stop. And maybe Apple Valley traffic, Cessna 147 Zulu, turning base to final, runway 29er, full stop. And then you would want to update on final. And then after you land, you'd want to update and say where you're taxiing to and what taxiways you're using. Landing is the most practiced and critical part of a student pilot's training. We go into much more detail and offer some words of wisdom on each step of the landing in our checkride prep course, but let's but we're briefly going to cover the steps of a landing pattern here. So if entered on downwind or already in the pattern, so let's consider we're if entered on downwind already in the pattern. Upon entering downwind, pilot should already understand the wind conditions on the runway and possible crosswind corrections needed should still be at traffic pattern altitude. And I just want to note the same note as our last episode, that these are all recommendations and general procedures that are seen in most common trainer aircraft, like Cherokee Warriors and Cessna 172s. These may not apply to you, right? A standard air- airport with a standard pattern, you know, that might be different according to what's in the chart supplement or notums or what the tower is telling you to do. We're just assuming the most standard most common trainer aircraft airport traffic pattern here, okay? This may not apply to you. So this is just for an aid in learning and you will learn how to do this at your airport with your aircraft from your flight instructor. Just wanna throw out that disclaimer there. So upon entering downwind, as we said, you should still be at traffic pattern altitude. Once you're in downwind, you should reduce power to about 85% of full power. We wanna start the process of starting to slow down for our landing. And you want to trim the aircraft for a downwind speed target. So whatever downwind speed target, like in a Cherokee Warrior, it's about 80 knots for a downwind. So you want to, again, that's different for your aircraft, but you want to trim your aircraft for that at about around 85% power, or again, whatever is best for your aircraft. At the runway threshold, you should still be at the traffic pattern altitude. And here you want to start to reduce power even more, maybe about 60% of full power. Again, depends on your aircraft. Adjust accordingly for about a 500 feet per minute descent rate on your VSI. So you want to get that descent rate right and start to descend when you get to the runway threshold. This is about the time also from, again, most trainer aircraft, where you add one notch of flaps. And then you'll want to trim to your next target airspeed. Okay, we're going to trim, add flaps, let that kind of settle out, and then make sure we're on our target airspeed for this next phase of flight, which will be a little bit less. You know, maybe it's like 75 knots. Then at a 45 degree angle from runway threshold or when runway is located in the middle of your wing and at about 800 feet AGL or so, you want to add a second notch of flap. And again, we're talking about standard traffic pattern altitudes and everything standard. So that 800 feet AGL is based off a thousand foot AGL traffic pattern, which is a standard. So after you've lost about 200 feet, this is when you would want to probably add a second notch of flaps. Look out for other landing traffic. At this point, you may need to extend downwind before turning base. So obviously, if you're at a controlled tower, they would tell you what to do here, what number landing you are. Um, if you're not, you want to look out for traffic and you know adjust accordingly. If there's someone landing on final, you'd want to continue on your downwind before you turn to base, obviously, so that you can go in after them uh, as number two for landing. Again, if you, if you need to wait for traffic, you want to continue on, on your downwind so that you can time that appropriately and have that spacing that you need for safety. All right, so 
But let's say there's no traffic, right? So at about 800 feet AGL or so, a 45 degree angle, you'll start your turn to base and adjust trim or pitch to fly at your next targeted airspeed. So we're getting even slower, right? Maybe we're now at 70 knots, again, for most general kind of trainer aircraft. And I have a little diagram here of what that kind of looks like for a pilot kind of looking back and seeing the runway off at 45 degrees. So if we're in a left pattern, right, that would be off your left shoulder. If you're in a right pattern, the runway threshold would be off your right shoulder. And once it's about 45 degrees behind your shoulder, that's what we're talking about here. So approximately two-thirds or a third of the nautical mile of the distance from the start of your turn to base to the runway. And at about 500 feet AGL now, Again, these are all just standard, most common. It's going to change for your airport and your aircraft, and you'll learn that with your instructor. You want to turn to final, and main thing that's going to dictate that is turning onto the center line. We talked about in the last episode, you don't want to overshoot, right? You're low and you're slow right now. Overshooting and then overcorrecting with steep banks, you only want to do nice, gentle, coordinated turns here. If you overcorrect with too steep of turns, or something, you will increase that stall speed and you may stall and you're again, you're low and slow and you do not want to stall at this point right now. So be careful with that. Make sure you get on center line. But again, if it's going to take too long to get on center line with the general coordinated banks, then just go around. So turn to final, trim your aircraft for your landing speed. Again, depending on your aircraft, anywhere, most trainer aircraft is anywhere from 60 to 65 knots. Use the VASI or PAPI to determine if you're above or below glide slope. If no VASI or PAPI, use the sight picture out your windshield. Use the throttle to maintain or correct your glide slope. Be on the lookout for aircraft taking off or landing before you, especially larger aircraft, and especially if you're at an uncontrolled airport, because sometimes people are the worst. <laughs> and sometimes they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they're not on the CTAF Unicom frequency, and they're causing problems for everybody, or they're on the wrong one, or something like that. So never assume that people are doing the right thing. Just make sure that you are and you're looking out for other people. And then if there's large aircraft, you have wake turbulence to think about. So you want to plan your touchdown point to avoid their wake turbulence. Then you want to use pitch or pitch trim to maintain your airspeed for your landing speed. And you'd want to start to bring down your power, right? To eventually you want to land without any power. You might want to keep a little bit in depending on the wind conditions or or what you're trying to do on your landing. You also want to input your crosswind controls in the event a crosswind is present. You want to maintain that center line to maintain your ground track on that center line of the runway and keep the fuselage of your aircraft parallel to the center line using your rudder. And then once landing is assured, right, and we have a picture of all this kind of broken down with, you know, air speeds and stuff like that. But once landing is assured, you know you'll be able to reach runway with no power. So that's what landing assured kind of means, to be able to reach it with, with no power. Cut throttle to idle and maintain landing speed with pitch. Choose your touchdown aim point on the runway. Using the beginning of the numbers or even in front of them may put you at a risk of touching down before the threshold, which violates FAA airport regulations. So you don't want to land before the threshold. So be careful for that. If larger aircraft has landed or taken off prior to you, be sure to choose aim spot to avoid their wake turbulence. Keep safe airspeed, but do not fixate on the airspeed indicator. Instead, fixate on the sight picture and your aim point on the runway. Once approximately 10 feet off the ground, move your eyes off of your aim spot directly in front of you and out towards the end of the runway. Flare the aircraft by gently leveling off the aircraft by pulling back on the yoke. If you have any excess airspeed during flare, your aircraft will bounce and float in the air due to ground effect and you will use up a longer distance to land. So be cognizant of that. That's why it's so important to, and why we talk about all these little details in our pattern. 
You want to nail every single airspeed and configuration in your pattern and altitude, descent rates, all that. Because if one of those things off, by the time it gets to final, it's going to metastasize into something like excess airspeed or not enough airspeed, and it's going to ruin your landing. So it's, that's why you really want to be detailed and nail every single part of your pattern. Because again, and this is something that they may ask you in your check ride or something, if you have excess airspeed during flare, your aircraft will bounce and float in the air due to ground effect and use up a longer distance to land. When your gear touches down, continue to hold the yoke back and keep wind corrections in until the nose drops, then release the yoke, but maintain wind corrections. So again, these are all just kind of suggestions and common procedures. I am not your flight instructor. I'm not there with the plane. So whatever your flight instructor and you talk about, that is what you're going to do. These are kind of FAA general recommendations of what to do here and how most people learn these things. All right, once slowed to taxi speed, which is about a brisk walking speed, turn off onto the next closest taxiway and make sure your aircraft is completely clear of runway by stopping beyond the solid lines of the runway hold short markings. Prepare for instructions from the tower, or if you're at an uncontrolled airport, you know, make your next calls on what you want to do with CTAF frequency. And then cross the runway taxiway threshold completely and stop your aircraft. Perform your after landing checklist to get out and get out your aircraft taxi diagram and then listen to the tower for instructions. They'll usually pass you off to ground here, but you can't change the ground frequency until they do that to you. If at any point during the above procedures for the final leg flare and touchdown of the landing, you feel that landing is unsafe, perform a go around. A note here for tailwheel aircraft, the touchdown dynamics are much different. This is again due to the high AOA three-point attitude in a tailwheel that occurs when all three wheels are on the ground. In a nosewheel aircraft, when you touch down, the aircraft is put into an attitude at a much lower AOA that produces much less lift. This reduction in lift helps aid in the landing process. However, in a tailwheel, the high AOA upon touchdown continues to generate lift and keep the aircraft flying. Therefore, considerable effort and practice required to maintain heading, roll, and pitch for a longer period of time while the aircraft slows down enough. Aerodynamic braking can be used to slow the aircraft down. So that's just a, a note for our tailwheel pilots out there. All right, this brings us to the concept of a stabilized approach. So we kind of talked about what sort of approach and a pattern will look like. The FAA likes to talk about a stabilized approach in their documents and, you know, the FAR AIM, PHAC, stuff like that. So what is a stabilized approach? Well, as a pilot, focusing on Establishing and maintaining a stabilized approach and landing is a great way to avoid experiencing a loss of control. We essentially just spoke of this above in our outline of a traffic pattern and landing, except we extended it to the entire pattern. Remember when I mentioned how important it is to maintain all your airspeeds, configurations, and stuff like that, and the glide slope? All that encompassing is what you call a stabilized approach when you really nail your entire pattern and approach. So what is the FAA definition of a stabilized approach? A stabilized approach is one in which the pilot establishes and maintains a constant angle glide path towards a predetermined point on the landing runway. It is based on the pilot's judgment of certain visual cues or visual clues and depends on the maintenance of a constant final descent airspeed and configuration. To remember this, think constant glide path angle, landing spot, and constant adjustments. A method to estimate the appropriate descent rate in feet per minute to maintain a three degree glide path is to multiply the ground speed in knots by five. When available, use a visual approach system such as a Vassier Pappy or Precision Instrument Approach to help maintain your glide path. So the three degree glide path is the standard glide path. So if you don't have a Vassier or Pappy, 
that's what you want to target. But how do you know you're on a three degrees glide path? Well, you can, to multiply the ground speed by five knots, that's going to give you the descent rate for a three degree glide path. So say your ground speed is 100 knots, multiply that by five, that's going to give you a 500 foot per minute descent rate. So that's what you target on your VSI. The next thing I want to bring up is a, a hazard for landing called hydroplaning. It's in the FAA source material, so you may be asked about that as well. Hydroplaning is a condition in which standing water, slush, or snow causes the moving wheel of an aircraft at high speeds to lose contact with the load-bearing smooth runway surface on which it is rolling with the result that braking action on the wheel is not effective in reducing the ground speed of the aircraft. Hydroplaning is likely to occur during conditions of standing water, slush, high speed, and smooth runway texture. There are three types of hydroplaning. You have dynamic hydroplaning, reverted rubber hydroplaning, and viscous hydroplaning. Dynamic hydroplaning develops at high speeds during takeoffs and landings, but can persist at slower speeds once it has begun. For dynamic hydroplaning to occur, a thin layer of at least one-tenth of an inch deep water, so one-tenth of an inch deep water, must be present on the runway. As an aircraft tire accelerates through the film of water, the water ahead of the tire begins to build up until it forms a wedge. When this occurs, you are literally surfing on the water and will have no traction to steer or to brake. To try and avoid dynamic hydroplaning, you can avoid landing fast on wet runways, keep tires properly inflated, underinflated tires hydroplane easier than inflated ones, or use aerodynamic braking to slow down instead of brakes, i.e. pull back on the yoke for as long as possible. The next one is reverted rubber hydroplaning. Reverted rubber hydroplaning occurs when your aircraft's tires lock up and the rubber begins to melt from friction. Trapped water under the tires turns to steam and your aircraft rides on top of the steam, reducing your traction for steering and braking. This type of hydroplaning requires only the smallest layer of water on the runway. Any wet runway is enough for reverted rubber hydroplaning to occur. So it could have you know, there could be no like standing water. It could just be wet asphalt and you can land. And if, if your tires lock and you get that really hot friction and it melts the rubber and creates, it'll also melt that water and create a steam. It's a tiny, tiny microscopic layer of steam that lift, actually lifts your aircraft up. Pretty crazy. It's kind of similar to like, I don't know if you've ever heard of like how ice skaters actually skate is the point of the blade of the ice skate is so thin that it has a high pressure on the ice and it actually that higher pressure allows the ice to actually melt and so you're actually gliding on top of like melted water on top of the ice and that's why it's easy to do that so to try and avoid reverted rubber hydroplane you can use aerodynamic braking to slow down instead of brakes right we want to avoid like slamming on the brakes and then uh, viscous hydroplaning is the last one Viscous hydroplaning is due to the viscous properties of water which do not allow your aircraft tires to penetrate a layer of water and create traction with the runway surface. This effect is amplified when oil or accumulated rubber combines with water on a runway. This is common near common takeoff and landing spots, right? Like where everyone's landing, they have the tire marks. That's like rubber smearing off the tires onto the runway and then you get oils dripping from the aircraft. So common landing spots it's not going to be that asphalt that has good friction and traction it's going to have all sorts of stuff or like the runway numbers that are painted on top of that paint right that's going to be tough spots and slippery kind of spot so that amplifies the effects of viscous hydroplaning so a thin 
film of water or the water-oil-rubber mixture basically forms an impenetrable layer of liquid that your tires ride on top of, removing any traction for steering or braking. To avoid viscous hydroplaning, you can avoid landing fast, keep tires properly inflated, again, underinflated tires hydroplane easier, and then, of course, use aerodynamic braking. So I have a picture of what each kind of one of these look like with the tires and, and the surface of the runway. The main thing to remember here is that hydroplaning basically means your tires are not actually in contact with the, the runway surface. So when you brake and your traction are going to be lost. That's the main thing to remember here. Grooved runways are one way airports try to eliminate dangers of hydroplaning. However, grooved runways do not eliminate hydroplaning completely, but they do reduce it to manageable levels since the grooves provide better drainage of the water, right? Additionally, if pilots expect a wet runway on takeoff or landing, they can focus on avoiding high speeds while the tires are still touching the surface. This means landing as slow and as safely as possible, like in a short field landing, and taking off as slow as possible, like in a soft field takeoff. If hydroplaning is suspected, a pilot should remember that their tires are no longer in contact with the runway and therefore braking is useless and they should remove any pressure on the brakes and use aerodynamic braking, again, i.e. holding the nose up via drag, put as much weight as possible on the main gears while they slow the aircraft. Finally, pilots should be well aware of the runway lengths for takeoff and landing in order to understand how much runway they have left to come to a full stop. Aircraft manufacturers may publish data for takeoff and landing distance, distances with contaminated runways, which incorporate hydroplaning effects. So contaminated runway, like, you know, that's like if you don't have the best traction, essentially, like you may have in your AFM POH information on how much runway length you should give yourself if you are on a contaminated runway. All right, we're almost done with this lesson. There's a few things I want you to look out for and understand during takeoff and landing. Possible wake turbulence from airplane or helicopter that has landed or taken off before you. Again, be cognizant of that. We had a whole lesson on wake turbulence. Don't hesitate to ask for a go-around if you're uncomfortable or not sure where to choose your landing spots. Dust devils. If a dust devil, which is like a small tornado usually found in flatland desert areas, approaches your runway during approach to landing, just go around. Don't try and fly through it or avoid it or think it might be fun or think it's not powerful enough. Just don't don't risk it. If the crosswind controls you had planned are not keeping you on center, the winds may have changed. If you can't figure this out by the time you are halfway done with final approach, again, don't be afraid to go around. Finally, during flare, if you have any excess airspeed, your aircraft will bounce in the air and float and you will take a considerable more distance to land. Don't be afraid to go around, especially with a short runway. All right. That is it. That was our Christmas episode. If anybody is listening to this on Christmas Day, you are amazing and you are dedicated and I love you. No, (laughs) but thank you for listening. And I hope you take a break and go and just relax. Whether you celebrate, whatever you celebrate, whether you don't celebrate, just this is a time to do something for yourself. So go ahead and do that. And thank you again for listening. And until next week, I'll talk to you later. Part-time pilot is well worth the money. 
It definitely was for me as a full-time worker with other obligations outside of my job. The content being made available online through audio and video format as well made for a great and flexible learning experience. It definitely helped me pass my FAA written. Thanks, Nick. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day 
part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read. So for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.